Welcome back to the Tank Me Later podcast. This is episode 19, and for this episode, we will be doing a schedule breakdown, looking at back-to-backs, rest advantages and disadvantages, things like that, and what that will mean for your fantasy season. And then I will end by giving 10 hot takes for the 2023-2024 season. Before we get into that, just a reminder to subscribe to my Substack, uh, norubin.substack.com. Follow me on Twitter at norubin22, and you're can ask me any sort of dynasty or fantasy related question there. And I will either get you the best answer I can or share it to get you an even better answer from somebody that's more knowledgeable than me. And then if you can just like and rate my podcast as well, that'll help me gain uh, more listeners so we can talk dynasty hoops with more people and it'll really help me out a ton. Uh, But let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Right, so like I said, I am by myself today, and we are going to start by going through uh, some of some schedule related stuff since that tends to impact uh, a lot of guys in fantasies, how many games they're playing, back to backs, things like that. So maybe I'm behind, but I had never heard of this website. Um, and again, maybe some people will say, like, wow, how are you able to do your job without knowing about this? Uh, but that's the case. Um, maybe maybe I'm not that behind. I don't know. PositiveResidual.com um, has a lot of schedule-related things. Uh, good, Really good information. It's very helpful. And I think I had seen their graphics in the past. I just didn't know that it was from them. Uh, but now I'm actually able to look at their website. So I'm going to go ahead and if you're watching the video version, you can. I'm sharing my screen so that you are able to see this right along with me. Um, so some of the good stuff that they have here, um, is looking at back-to-backs, rest advantages and disadvantages and miles traveled. Um, there's some other things such as strength of schedule. Um, but honestly with the NBA, you know, strength of schedule ends up being, and I feel like it is like this in other sports as well. Um, a lot of times if you're a bad team last year, then because you don't play yourself, you have a harder strength of schedule. And that's literally the case here. And that the good teams, since they don't have to play themselves, they end up having an easier strength of schedule for the most part. Obviously that changes with playing in the East versus playing in the West, but Denver has the easiest strength of schedule and the Spurs have the most difficult strength of schedule. I know the Spurs weren't the worst team in the league last season, but the Rockets are second. The Kings are third. Obviously, they're not the third worst team in the league, anywhere close to that. Matter of fact, they're the third best team in the West in the regular season. Um, but that's just the way it works out with this, uh, probably because they play in a tough division. Um, and then, so Denver has the hardest, Utah, or excuse me, the easiest. Utah's the second easiest, and Boston third. So I don't really consider strength of schedule a ton. I think, you know, everybody plays everybody in the NBA. The only thing is that, you play your conference four times or three times instead of just two. So your schedule shouldn't matter that much as far as strength of schedule. Uh, still good information. Um, but I like to look, I guess the most important thing to me is back-to-backs. And I think this is the most important thing to a lot of people because you find out about 
the old guys, whether they're playing or not, really. Um, so last year, I feel like there was a little bit more variation. I think it was anywhere between 12 to 15 games this year. Everybody, uh, as, excuse me, 12 to 15 back-to-backs. This year, it's 13 to 15 back-to-backs. So there's nobody with, I mean, it's a slight less advantage, slightly less of an advantage for those who play the least amount of back-to-backs versus the most. Um, so we'll start with the teams that have the least. So there's 10 teams that play 13 back-to-backs, 11 teams that play 14 back-to-backs, and nine teams that play 15 back-to-backs. So it's not a huge advantage, but it's important to note um, maybe I should have looked to see if there was who had back-to-backs during the fantasy playoffs, but we're still two months out from the season. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. This is just a very preliminary look. So Dallas, Denver, Indiana, Miami, Minnesota, New Orleans, New York, San Antonio, Utah, and Washington all play 13 back-to-backs, which is the fewest, which means for guys like um, Jimmy Butler and Zion, Brandon Ingram, maybe Victor Wembenyama. I mean, obviously there's no injury concerns yet, but I feel like the kind of the consensus, or maybe it's not the consensus, maybe it's just my opinion. Regardless of what he says, it's up to the training staff and it's up to the coaching staff and the Spurs, like, are just not going to be a playoff team this year. Like they could compete for a play in spot if everything goes right. But between possible injuries and just being a young team, they are at l- probably two years away from being a playoff team, at least one in my opinion, because regardless of what maybe some people think Victor Wembanyama is not going to come in and win MVP. He's just not, he's going to, he has a chance to, be the greatest player of all time. I think he's that type of prospect just because he's seven, five, he can shoot step backs and everybody knows about Wemby. No need to give a full scouting report and go in depth there. Um, I think that there's a chance that he's, you know, has a minor injury and they over-exaggerate to keep him out of games, help their lottery odds a little bit, but really just help get him acclimated to the NBA. So I think that there's a chance. I'm not saying that's a guarantee, but there's a chance that, Wemby ends up sitting back-to-backs. Uh, then I think that is it for the guys that really stick out to me as super concerns for who could sit out back-to-backs as far as those that have 13. I mean, maybe Kyrie but or Luca, but like probably not. Um, maybe Carl Anthony Towns just because he had a major injury last year, but probably not. Uh, we know Tibbs isn't going to do that, so we're not worried about the Knicks. So that's kind of what we're looking at there. Um, so then if we go to the teams that have 14 back-to-backs, looking at the Celtics, the Nets, the Bulls, the Rockets, the Grizzlies, the Bucks, the Thunder, the 76ers, the Suns, the Trailblazers, and the Raptors. So if we go back to the top, not too worried about anybody in Boston, maybe Al Horford, maybe Robert Williams, but not too concerned there. Um, I th- or even Chris Epps Porzingis, I think between the three of them, Boston may have the flexibility to say, hey, one of you guys sits out the back-to-back and then the other two can start. I suppose if they really want to try that. But as of now, I don't really have any concerns until an injury occurs just because 
um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I know Chris Steps Porzingis played, I believe, 64 games last season. Um, so he's the main, main injury concern just because Robert Williams, like we know he has knee issues, but he's probably going to be coming off the bench more minutes limited than necessarily sitting back to backs. And then Al Horford, he's older, so maybe there. I think it's all like a, a slight concern. The one I'm most concerned about is Porzingis. Is that's kind of what I mean with that. Um, not that none of them or that Robert Williams is less of a concern to miss games. I think he's less of a concern from a fantasy perspective because Porzingis is going to be drafted higher. That's kind of what I'm getting at there. Um, so Boston, the Nets, not too worried about anybody. The Bulls, maybe, but I mean, probably not. Like they're going to have to have DeMar, Vucevic, and Levine play 70, 75 games for them to get back to the play-in. Um, and that seems to be what they're intent on doing is just being mediocre and competitive at times. So not too concerned there. Nobody with Houston. Uh, Memphis, probably not as well. Not too concerned. Um, the Bucks, maybe Chris Middleton. Um, Giannis at times. Um, the 76ers, obviously, Joel Embiid is consistently like just a maybe. Not saying he's he's... I don't like labeling him as I don't think he's a guy that is injury prone just because he had so many injuries earlier in his career. Like he's shown that he's available the past few seasons, but every single night he is questionable game time decision. So if it if a knee is bothering him a little bit, he's he won't play. Um and especially on a back to back. So 14 times, I'm not saying you can chalk him up for 14 missed games at least, but something to definitely but if you're drafting and beat, you know that. The Suns, I think both Beal and Kevin Durant are guys, you know, a little bit concerned, 14, but that's just 14 games. So KD's probably going to miss more than just the 14. I'd be very impressed if he's able to play 68 games or 69 if they make it to the play or the uh, midseason tournament championship, in season tournament championship. Suppose that's possible. And I guess. This wouldn't affect back-to-backs, but I believe this data uh, doesn't include any sort of in-season tournament in Vegas. So it says 80 games for everybody. What I believe is that is um, just designed for that stretch of games that are supposed to be with the in-season tournament is played in Vegas. I suppose that other teams will just kind of have normal games. They just haven't scheduled out yet because they don't know who's going to play. I didn't read into that a ton, or I don't know if they've said that exactly how that'll work, but I'm sure we'll figure it out as we get closer to the time. Um, but those will be probably games that are not back-to-backs thrown in during that stretch. Normal games, except for the teams that may have that extra game in there, but we'll see how that impacts fantasy. I guess I haven't really looked into that either to see. I'm just getting off on a, you know, train of thought just following it here because I haven't thought about how is that extra game just on a day by itself nobody else will play so that they're able to um, really promote this and get people to watch so they're not going to have other games on so it'll just be the focus on that is what if that's on like a Sunday it's the last day of a fantasy matchup week having guys in that could be the difference I don't know just something to consider Maybe not saying it's something you should draft around, but when that week approaches, something to consider. 
Portland should be all young guys at that point, assuming Dame gets traded. And the Raptors, eh, not too concerned there. Fred VanVleet's gone. Um, not saying he was a guy that rested back-to-backs, but I think they're a team that's kind of ready to rebuild. I mean, they're kind of retooling here. Um, you know, Scotty Barnes, Grady Dick, and then they have OG Ananobi's not old. Gary Chen Jr. is not old, obviously. Um, it's just Siakam and Jakob Pertl left that are kind of on the older side. Um which after seeing that Siakam could get a five-year, 300-something million dollar contract if he, I believe, makes All-NBA this upcoming season, he could get a Supermax like Jalen Brown did. Um, But if he gets traded, that kind of all goes away. Then I don't suspect Siakam gets traded unless it's literally against his will. Like, I, I don't know exactly what contract he'd be able to get if he was traded, but if you're able to make 300 million as opposed to... I don't know, 240. I mean, it's probably in the grand scheme of things. Like, you know, oh man, the difference between 300 million and 240 isn't a huge, huge deal when you're looking at it like that. But, you know, an extra 60 million doesn't hurt. Um, all that to say is Toronto could choose to rebuild. I don't think that they're ready to yet. So I'm not too concerned about anybody there because most of their guys are young. Um, sitting out back-to-backs. But then the teams that play 15 back-to-backs, which is the most um, by two. So again, not like a huge, huge advantage. Like you're not avoiding guys because they play two extra back-to-backs. Like you're just not in an 82-game season potentially missing two extra games, which there's only a handful of guys that you're really, really concerned about that are going to sit back-to-backs. But I think that the NBA really hit it on the head and got all the guys that are probably going to sit back-to-backs almost guaranteed in this. So the Hawks, not too concerned. The Hornets, not too concerned. The Cavs, not concerned. Pistons, not concerned. But here's where we get it. The Warriors, the Clippers, Lakers, Magic, and Kings, not too concerned. So really, the Warriors, Clippers, Lakers, having all of them play 15 back-to-backs, I think, Steph, Clay, Draymond, Chris Paul, right there. All of them could sit at least some back-to-backs. Um, the Clippers, I don't. I would be very surprised. Not very surprised. Um, I'm not optimistic that Paul George or Kawhi Leonard suits up for a back-to-back this season. Um, and I would say the same thing for the Lakers with LeBron and AD, barring it coming down to like late March, early April, and they're in the middle of the pack of the standings and they're trying to solidify a playoff spot, then they might play a back-to-back. Um, but other than that, not not exactly banking on them playing them. So it, it kind of sucks that they're playing the most, but again, it's not it's not a huge advantage or disadvantage for them, uh, for them to have two extra back-to-backs compared to some other teams. So now we're going to look at rest advantages. So this is... Games that teams play that they have more time to rest than the opposing team. So if they had a day off and the opposing team had a, has a back-to-back, or they had two days off and the opposing team had one, three to two, whatever it is, um, this probably won't be a huge thing for fan. Like it's not a huge thing for fantasy. I'd say it's more potentially for um, betting lines, maybe. Um, 
you know, if you're trying to find a team that has a pretty major advantage uh, that could help them, if you're betting on them to hit a, a win total, um, hit it over or an under, or make the playoffs, miss the playoffs, whatever it is, um, this is something that you could definitely look at and say, hey, this is a nice boost. So the team with the largest rest advantage is the Celtics. So they have 16 games where they have more rest than their opponents. Um, you know, rich get richer. Uh, probably one of, if not the best team in the East as far as um, and team that you'd probably be expecting to compete for a championship um, is Boston. So they get a little bit more rest advantage, um, which will not hurt them for sure. Um, and then... Oops, did I zoom in? I don't even know what I did. Um, the teams that have 15 are the Kings and the Timberwolves. So, yeah, I mean, they'll have a little bit of an advantage with that. Um, so, Apologies if you're just listening and not watching my video. I clicked and messed up my graph and it totally distracted me and I just couldn't refocus or figure it out for the life of me. Uh, so I paused it and we are back. So like I was saying, Celtics have a 16, a 16 games with the rest advantage. The Timberwolves and Kings have 15 and the Trailblazers and Nets have 14 games with a rest advantage. Um, and a lot of times rest means the difference between winning and not, um, especially this isn't specific enough. Um, I'm sure you could go through and figure it out. It's, it's not specific enough for you to say, okay, this is um, specifically one day advantage versus or more versus a team coming off of a back-to-back. -back. Um, so there's no way to see who truly benefits from those back-to-backs the most. Just based off this, I'm sure you could go through or find, I don't know, maybe there is another resource that has that. Um, but not from what I'm seeing here. Uh, so, but then if we look at it on the flip side, the teams that have the least number of games with an advantage, um, it's the Rockets with five, and then the Pistons and Warriors with six, and the Lakers with seven. Um, so, if you're on the side of the league hates the Lakers and Warriors, here's your evidence. If you're on the side that the league loves the Lakers and Warriors, Sorry, I got evidence against that right here. So the NBA does or does not favor the Lakers and Warriors. I mean, it, it, if anything, they favor the Celtics. So that's just the way it is um, based off this data. Um, so then if we look at rest disadvantages, that'll pull up. Um, it's a slightly more, it's more compressed. You know, the last one was very varied um, in the sense that the Celtics had 16 games with an advantage and the Rockets only had five. Um, this time, the Magic are at a rest disadvantage in 13 of their games, while the Bulls are at a rest disadvantage for only eight, and the, those are the only two teams with those amount. As a matter of fact, 10 teams have a nine, uh, nine games with a rest disadvantage, and then six have 10, 11, and 12 games um, with a rest disadvantage, which... You know, I mean, we've, I'm sure everybody's seen their favorite team play on a back to back one game, maybe not every time, but sometimes playing a back to back and it's 
It's like, I watched this team last night. This isn't the same team that played the night before. Like, it's just not. And a lot of times that has to do with that rest. Um, you know, especially if you're traveling in between games, obviously this doesn't have that either. Uh, but if you're, you know, playing on whatever time, it's all night games, get on a plane, have to fly and go play another game the next night. You know, they're professionals, but sometimes it wears on your body. So I think everybody knows that. Um, so yeah, so this is not ideal for the Magic, ideal for the Bulls. And the other thing I want to look at, more so because it's fun um, and a fun representation, as opposed to really, again, not really something you're going to calculate into um, how you draft, but um, the Clippers travel the most miles this season at 50,670, and the Pacers travel the least at 33,736. Obviously, that has a lot to do with their central location. I mean, if you look, the bottom few teams are the Pacers, the Raptors, the Pistons, and the Bucks. Um, just kind of northern, centrally located teams where they can they aren't far from the northeast or the southeast. Um, and then, but they're also closer to the West Coast teams than those other teams. So, not super surprising there. And then, uh, but what is surprising, I think, to me, and maybe again, this has to do with how far they are to the side um the clippers yeah they're they're one i think i saw some that generally it's portland um and i believe they are five six it looks like six most miles traveled so nice break for them to only have to travel forty six thousand miles this season but um the nets are second which is a little bit surprising to me um if you're able to um look on if you're watching the video it's not actually highlighting the nets here, but it's obviously somewhere around oh, there. It is popped up for a little bit. Anyways. Um, yeah. Just surprising to me because of how many teams they aren't that far from. So it's just the way the math works out with them having to probably travel back and forth from the West coast to the East coast a good bit um, or more so than other teams have to. So Fun data to look at. Um, schedule is always interesting. Is you know getting to look at data like this for fantasy, but also if you go to watch games, it's fun to see. Okay, this is exactly when I'll be able to go see this team. I've already I, as soon as it released, I was planning it out because um, now Charlotte is the closest arena to me. Uh, but having grown up less than an hour, about an hour from the Hawks, uh, would always go to their games, and now both teams open their season in Charlotte. So I'm going to definitely try and get up to that as well as a couple of other games um, to maybe try and see some stars I haven't seen before. You know, I've, I've seen quite a bit, but I've not, I've never seen, you know, Steph or KD. I would love to go see them. I'm definitely going to try and go see Wemby play in Charlotte when that, if I'm able to get out to that one. So definitely a few games to try and get out to schedule really stays always fun. Um, but I think that's probably, it for that portion for looking at the schedule. Um, again, it's a little bit of data you can glean from it, but not, not a ton, just more things to consider. I don't think, you know, if, if you were going to, you know, take a chance and, and draft Kawhi Leonard or Paul George, seeing that they have 15 back-to-backs versus 13 is not changing your opinion. 
not saying, oh, you definitely should take a chance or definitely not, because I think it's kind of the decision of each manager, you know. I think it is, it's obviously a risk drafting either guy along with other guys. I just use them as the example because I feel like Kawhi is the face of, um, you know, resting and, and injuries and back to backs. And he's kind of the guy you think of. So that's why I'm using that example, not because I think that there aren't other guys that are the same way. Um, but I don't think that seeing the back to backs is going to actually change your opinion on that. Um, but still, like I said, fun data to look at. But now we are going to look at 10 hot takes that I have for the 2023-2024 season. So obviously, um, we've been looking at scheduled data for this season. And now we're going to look at hot takes for this season. I know it's a dynasty podcast. And generally, we try and look a few years in advance. Um, and a lot of this podcast is focused on how guys project, but how guys do this season is still just important, especially if you're trying to compete. So that data is just as important as dynasty long-term data, um, depending on team direction. So if you're a team that's looking to compete this season, hopefully these hot takes will be right. But I feel like a hot take is only a hot take if there's a chance that it's wrong. If it's if there's no chance that it's wrong, then it's not really a hot take. It's just like a fact or like a consensus. You know, so a hot take has to be bold, but also has to have a side where it's like, okay, like maybe this isn't going to happen. Like maybe I'm just totally wrong. And like, so I think what I'm going to do for this is give my hot takes and quite a few of them are probably ones you've heard me say or tweet before. So some of them won't be a huge surprise. Some of them may be a little bit more surprising. I hope that at least a couple of them are surprising. So I'm not just saying the same thing over and over again. Um, but so for each of these, I'm going to say what it is a little bit about why I think that, and then also like why it might not happen. And then hopefully that supplies you with the information for both sides to help you make the best decision when you're drafting. And I feel like, that's important. So let's go ahead and get into this. Um, the first take should be literally to the surprise of no one. Uh, Derek White finishes in the top 50. I have been beating the Derek White drum um, pretty much all for, well, we'll call it the last month or so, maybe at least the last few weeks. Um, written a couple articles with a Derek White section in it. Um, when Adam King hosted Fantasy Basketball International's, um, I guess, industry roundtable column. I think that's what it's called, industry roundtable. First thing we did was hot takes. Mine was Derek White finishes in the top 50. Obviously, I've had discussions on Twitter, um, dabbled around trying to get into the Derek White fan club. Um, anyways, Derek White finishes in the top 50. Um, obviously, this is a per-game basis, but I think – this is a take that I, I feel very confident in. I would also wouldn't be surprised if I was like, there's definitely a path for me to be totally wrong about this, but let's start with why I think this is the case. So, um, I mean, I've, I've given a lot of the numbers in various instances and in different places, but 
Basically, Derek White averaged 12.4 points, 3.6 rebounds, 3.9 assists, 0.7 steals, 0.9 blocks, and 1.83s, shot 46.2% from the field, only turned over 1.2 times. Now Marcus Smart's gone. And if, you know, I'm pulling up Marcus Smart's numbers here, but um, Derek White is going to be the starting point guard. That's already been announced. Marcus Smart averaged 6.3 assists per game last season. Now, they're not replacing him in the starting unit with another guard. They're going to, I would assume, go back to two bigs, you know, Al Horford probably at power forward, and Chris Stepps um, at center-ish, maybe flopped, whatever it is. They're going to be down low. Robert Williams off the bench. And that's that's what I think it'll be. Um, and then eventually, obviously, Al Horford has to retire at some point, I think. Um, so then Robert Williams would head back to the starting unit after that. Um, but so Derek White will be starting at point guard alongside Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. I think his assists go up. He plays more than 28.3 minutes per game. I think he could see 31, 32. So I assume the points go up slightly. The threes go up slightly. The rebounds go up slightly. He's on the floor more to play defense. He's also not, you know, splitting duties with Marcus Smart, trying to pick up, you know, or I guess match up better with whatever guard is out. Like Derek White's going to guard the best ball handle on the opposing team every time. Um, should give him an opportunity to get steals, uh, maybe get over one per game. And then the blocks, he was at 0.9. I assume he's going to get over one per game, uh, you know, especially just guarding the point guard for the opposing team. Marcus Smart definitely did that sometimes last season. So there's, so my point with that is Derek White's going to guard small guys and have a chance to block their shots when they drive good defender. Uh, but he's also efficient, you know, career highs, 1.6 turnovers per game. He averaged 1.2 last year. I would assume that gets closer to two per game since he will have the ball in his hands more. Now my, my thing that I was running into, not that phrase is weird, but I saw the argument on Twitter saying that, you know, just cause he's playing point guard doesn't mean he's going to, play point guard in the sense of some of the other star point, the, some of the star point guards in the NBA where they have the ball in their hands for like 80% of the game. And I get that. And I agree. I think he has the ball in his hands more because there's one less ball handler on the floor and he's the point guard. So, you know, the offense isn't going to run through Derek white. I know that. I know that they're not going to start spamming pick and rolls with him and he's not going to shoot 20 shots per game. He shot 9.2 shots per game last year. I assume that goes up. You know, I, I don't. I think it's it's minor improvements across the board, plus just being in a good situation for him. You know, he played really well and had a really good playoffs as well. I played really well last season. He, this is the first time he's been the starting point guard of a team. And again, I'm I'm not saying that means that he is the primary ball handler all the time. I think there are definitely occasions where he is, but Jason Tatum is you know, the face of the franchise is going to have his ball in his hands all the time. But Derek White is, I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying Jalen Brown can't dribble because I know that has been something that has been reiterated on Twitter basically for like uh, three months straight is that Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown can't go left. And yeah, he turned it over a lot going left. Derek White is the number two ball handler. Some ball handler uh, for the starting unit, just kind of swapping off with Jason Tatum. So the playmaking should go up. So this is the first time starting point guard because when he played in San Antonio, uh, when he was the starter, it was alongside DeJounte Murray when he was almost averaging a triple-double. And then 
Derek White got traded midseason during that season from DeJounte and became Boston's sixth man. It's the first time he's the starting point guard. And I think, you know, his assist can go up to, I mean, Marcus Smart averaged 6.3, and I don't think anybody would say Marcus Smart was, you know, overdoing it as a playmaker and the offense ran through him. That's what I'm, nobody's going to say the offense ran through Marcus Smart. So there's definitely a path for Derek White to average six and a half assists per game. I'd say it would take a really, really good season from him to get more than that. But I think it's very possible for him to add, we'll say we'll be conservative with it. Say, I think six assists per game is very realistic. And if he has a very good season, he gets to seven. So, and then the defensive stats go up. Um, and again, this all goes out the window if he has a poor shooting season, um, because I think his you know, efficiency is kind of what would keep him in the conversation to finish in the top 50. Um, and so that's kind of thinking that he played 82 games last year as well. So it would be encouraging to have a guy that plays really well and plays all the time instead of having to deal with missed games, which you have to deal with while playing fantasy basketball. Um, the reasons it wouldn't happen. I mean, a lot of people have said him like, just because he's starting a point guard doesn't mean that he's going to have the ball in his hands more. He is good with the ball or without the ball in his hands. I mean, maybe they traded Marcus smart because they felt like, okay, let's get Jason Tatum to basically be our floor general, be our point guard. Derek white stays in an off ball role, uh, way more than I'm thinking he will. And the numbers only go up a little bit. Maybe it's more of a minute split with him and Malcolm Brogdon and they don't really want to play them together and his minutes don't go up. And he just has a poor shooting season. Like that's very possible. Like um, the two seasons before that he shot 42% and 41% from the field. And then this past season, he bumped up to 46%. It's possible that he just regresses. That's very possible. Um, You know, and if the numbers don't go up enough in other areas, then it's going to be hard for him to get in the top 50. Um, But my counter my reasoning for that is that I think he can maintain that efficiency is the fact that he is playing alongside talented players, way more talented than he was playing alongside San Antonio. And he is going to get those off ball looks. Um, so he should be fine. In my opinion, I think top 50 is attainable. I know it's probably a little bit more than most people would think for Derek white. Um, but I think that it's very possible this season. It's set up well for him. Uh, the next one, trying to not be too much of a homer with these, um, but I have Trey Young finishing as a first rounder, which means top 12 in fantasy value. Um, and it's Trey Young returning to being a first rounder because not this past season, but the season before he finished 11th in nine cat scoring, um, where he had his best shooting season, shot 46% from the field. But this past season, he regressed and had his worst shooting season since his rookie season. He finished uh, shooting 42.9% from the field. Um, hit his fewest threes, 2.1 per game. Um, and he didn't have his career high for turnovers because the second season he almost turned it over five times a game. But still, heavy on turnovers, um, shooting regressed. You know, I think that a lot of people expected him to kind of fall off a little bit uh, with DeJounte, Tur- DeJounte Murray coming into town. Um, and he did, but not in the way that at least I expected, I expected him to be more efficient and the counting stats go down, but instead 
his he had a career high in assists and the efficiency went down. So my reason for optimism as far as having him get back to being a first rounder is Quinn Snyder. Um, I think Nate McMillan, when he fir- he first got the major extension because of the Eastern Conference Finals run, and I think what happened there was the Hawks were so tired of Lloyd Pierce, not saying rightfully so or anything, but the players in the locker room didn't want to listen to Lloyd Pierce and were just grateful to have a new voice. And I feel like Nate McMillan's you know philosophies as far as being a leader are good. You know the I don't know if probably anybody outside of Hawks fans, or maybe this is a thing that stretches back to being Pacers in Portland, but saying like, you know, staying calm, cool, collected was his thing. Um, Keeping the team together. He did a good job of that. And that's, he is a reason why the Hawks made it to the Eastern conference finals, but it was like, from that point on, they were kind of like, this is an Eastern conference finals team. This is an Eastern conference finals coach. Neither were true. They made a good run but I don't think anybody predicted before that season that they would. And I don't think anybody predicted not anybody, because of course the biased fans like myself said, Oh, great. We're going to make it a step further the next year. Um, But we didn't make any moves and it cost the Hawks greatly. Um, And Nate McMillan, it was kind of obvious that season that, you know, he turned that conference finals run into a big contract. Um, And then again, halfway through this season, this past season, they realized that, brought in Quinn Snyder um, and use the second half of this season literally for him, for Quinn Snyder to get to learn the players and the players to get to learn his system. And that resulted in the Hawks beating the heat in the play-in after, you know, kind of a choppy end of the regular season, beating the heat in the play-in, um, taking the Celtics to six, which, you know, had, I think a really bad game one and first half of game two from Trey Young, like atrocious. And I was like, oh, great. It's the Heat series all over again. But the way he responded from that and really was arguably the best player on the floor uh, for the rest of that series just didn't result in wins. And, you know, I'm sure there's Celtics fans that are just totally disagreeing, but um, at least at times he was maybe second best. But, um, yeah, so I feel very good about him going into this next season under Quinn Snyder. Um, I think the assists can stay right there um, at 10 per game. I assume that he's going to bounce back a little bit as far as his efficiency. I'm not saying so, – because, let's see, he shot 43.7 and 43.8% from the field years two and three, 46 in year four, and then 42.9 in year five. So year six now. I think that it's not necessarily, oh, he's going to get to 48% from the field, but I think 45, 46% is possible. Um, especially once they get, because, you know, Quinn Snyder is trying to install his offense on the fly. I think having the summer to work through all that will help Trey Young and his efficiency and just the way he plays. I think we're going to see him shoot more threes. Um, Nate McMillan's offense seemed to be very centered on getting some mid-range shots. And that just doesn't do it in today's NBA. And then as soon as Quinn Snyder comes in, he says, literally chuck threes. And they did. Like the Hawks, I don't think the numbers ended up standing out, but if you're watching the games, like it really 
the shots that they were taking are not always like they're not great three point shots or shots that they would have passed up to get mid range shots prior to that. But I think that this season the Hawks are going to shoot a lot more threes. Trey Young only shot two or only hit two point one this past season. I think he can get back over three, and with a little boost and improvement, I think getting back to being a first rounder is very attainable. Um, but it's not. You know, it's not an unrealistic thing. He's done it before, and he's also not being drafted too far outside the first round. Um, I don't have ADP data with me, but every mock draft I've participated in, he's either gone in the first round, like towards the end, or like early to mid second round. So it's not like he's this guy being drafted in the 40s now because he had a bad season and he's going to bounce back. Like people know he's going to be good and that he's better than his value suggests um you know getting 26 points and 10 assists per game you don't find that anywhere else there are not guys that do that consistently especially during a down season so adding in an extra three per game a little bit more efficiency i think that's kind of what we're looking at from trey young maybe a little bit of motivation from the fact that uh he was one of the names that i, I remember writing an article about like for um, PBT uh, after the athletics article saying that Trey Young and Bradley Beal were the two guys that have been talked about as guys that they, that could be on team USA. Um, You know, Trey Young has connections with Grant Hill being a partial owner of the Hawks um, to help him get in there and didn't get selected for the team. There was other reports saying that he didn't show well, which I'm not saying is, like impossible for that to have happened. I just think that it it must have taken a a really really bad couple of days from him uh, for them to take see what he's done in the NBA and say yeah we can't make that work here. And like I I get it. I don't actually want to go on a rant about why Trey Young should have been on Team USA um, because I don't really feel like it. But regardless. He's one of the most talented offensive players in the league. Um, and I think that's kind of what you need for fantasy. The arc, the counter argument would be maybe 46% was an outlier and he's just going to keep shooting 42 to 43% limits his value. Um, and he still turns the ball over a ton, maybe too much for him to ever get back to being a first rounder. Um, very, very possible. I think the main thing that he needs to, get back to doing is hitting more threes. Um, but maybe he just doesn't. We'll see. He's kind of flip-flopped every season. Uh, second season, he finished 19th, then 58th, then 11th, then 51st. This is all coming from Basketball Monster, by the way. Um, so maybe it's time for him to get back to being in the top 20, and I would assume back to being a first-rounder. Um, but we'll see. Maybe the turnover, like the inefficiency is just too much, and I think that's kind of the counter-argument. Number three here is Jeremy Grant finishing in the top 50. Um, so this is entirely dependent on Damian Lillard getting traded. So if, if Dame doesn't get traded, this isn't going to happen. Um, I just think that a trade is going to happen just because Portland being stubborn doesn't really help them. And I understand that 
you know, they don't want to get sold short and they want to get the best offer possible. But I think that as far as, you know, a team and culture and things like that, getting Damian Lillard where he wants to be as quickly as possible and getting, you know, draft picks back quickly, like they kind of are able to establish, hey, this is who we are now. Scoot Henderson, you're our point guard of the future. Right now it's in limbo. Like they're all trying to figure it out. They're waiting just for what a couple of, like maybe an extra pick, maybe two extra second rounders. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what the best offer is. Obviously trades have been or trade talks have been ongoing, but it's obviously not enough for them to feel comfortable. I just think that they should go ahead and do it. Um, maybe it's what I want for fantasy as well. Partially we'll see. Um, but assuming that happens, because I'm going to go ahead and say that if, if the trade doesn't happen, doesn't happen, this won't happen. Jamie Grant finishes in the top 50. Um, he His best finish is 61st, so it's not entirely out of his realm of possibilities. That was with Detroit, and you know he averaged 19.2 points, 1.9 threes, 4.1 rebounds, 2.4 assists, 0.9 steals, 1 block, and shot 42.6% from the floor. 83.8% from the free throw line. Um, his past season for Portland, he improved on all of those numbers, except the free throws dipped a little bit and the defensive stats slightly dipped. Um, he finished 72nd. So assuming he maintained, because he shot 47.5% from the floor this past season, um, assuming he can, th- this efficiency leap is something that he can maintain. If Damian Lillard gets traded, He's going to be the focal point of the offense. Like Scoot Henderson will be there. Anthony Simons will be there. Shaden Sharp will be there. Guys that can score the ball. Jeremy Grant is probably still the best player right now. Um, So I think that if Dame's traded, Jeremy Grant's going to have very high volume, high usage rate, and has a really good chance to finish in the top 50. Like Derek White, this doesn't mean I'm drafting him in the top 50. This means I'm trying to get him at a decent value maybe round seven um, of a 12-team league, maybe late round six, and and banking on him improving on that value. Um, the counter argument here is that he's played on bad teams and never finished in the top 50. Like he, when that Detroit team, he played for them for two seasons that they weren't good, and he just never was able to finish in the top 50. So, I mean, he's been in the NBA for while now he's um he'll turn 30 at some point this season um i think it's a good opportunity like the opportunity is presenting itself for him to be at the point where he's at in his career and also play on a bad team enough for him to become a top 50 player which he's gotten close um or excuse me a top 50 finish in nine cap value um so i think the stars are just kind of aligning for that, but there's definitely a, a decent counter argument for it. Um, considering what he's done in the past on bad teams. Fourth, another first rounder Lamella ball provides first round value. Um, this past season, he finished. Where is he? 30th. Yeah. He finished exactly 30th. Um, he only played 36 games the season before he finished 21st. And as a rookie, he finished 73rd. And the main concern has been the lack of games played. Um, 
which, you know, aside from 75 games his rookie year, played 36 this past year, excuse me, 75 games his second season. He played 51 as a rookie, 36 this past year. I get the concerns. This past season, he literally broke the same ankle or highly sprained and then broke the same ankle like multiple times. I think three times. Maybe I'm mixing him up with Dennis Smith Jr., but I know he injured the same ankle multiple times. I think they both did. It was just a weird season in Charlotte. Um, But his efficiency has gone down each season. I think this past year it was kind of like partially he just didn't really have any help. Miles Bridges was suspended, and he was kind of his co-star the year before. Uh, But he averaged 23.3 points, four threes, 6.4 rebounds, 8.4 assists, 1.3 steals. Like you, it's hard to shoot 41%, finish 30th in nine cap value. He put up numbers everywhere else to be able to do that. Um, I'm not saying Charlotte is going to be a playoff team, but they were a play-in team each of his first two seasons. And this past year, they were just really bad. I think that they have a better roster this season. Miles Bridges, assuming he's an interesting case because aside from how you may feel about him. You know, I'm I'm personally probably not going to draft him anywhere just because of how I feel about the situation and what he did. However, if we're looking at the numbers, if he it's hard to say whether he's going to be the same player because he just took a year off of basketball, off away from the NBA. And, you know, I don't I doubt, maybe I don't nobody knows that he was probably not working out and training every day. I would assume that if he's going through, um, you know, the situation that he's going through, that he's not able to mentally focus on basketball all the time. I would imagine. Um, so we don't know what kind of player Miles Bridges is going to be. We know what type of player he was before. Um, he's still going to be suspended, I believe, another ten games. Um, so I still think that Charlotte will be better. He's interesting, uh, but you still have. You know, Mark Williams is now officially starting center. Drafted Brandon Miller. Hopefully that'll help. Terry Rozier was good when Lamella was on the floor last year. Hopefully Lamella being healthy will help him play better. I think Charlotte competes for a playing spot like they did the previous seasons. I don't know if they get it, but I think that they're a better team, much better team than they were last year. You know, Lamella has talked about wanting to compete and try to win MVP this season. I think it was maybe just one quote. Um, but I think if he's able to shoot, 45% from the field. I, I I don't have the numbers, a spreadsheet to be able to influence those numbers in front of me and see exactly how he would have finished last season with a 45% shooting from the field. But he averaged 23.3 points, four threes, four threes, 6.4 rebounds, and 8.4 assists. It's You're not finding that everywhere. Uh, he came close during his sec- the past two seasons to first-round value. It just takes like he's going to take a step forward. He's 22. Same thing with Anthony Edwards. We know these guys are going to take a step forward probably this season. I think there's a very good chance Lamelo finishes as a first round value. You know we've had we had Tyrese Halliburton and SGA breakout last season, um, and those two guys along with Lamelo, at least in my eyes, probably I think from what I've seen most rankings, those three are kind of all grouped together. It's just a personal preference. Lamelo stays healthy. I know, like for some people, that's a big if. Lamelo's healthy. 
I think that there's a really good chance he finishes the first rounder. Now, the counter argument is he literally shot 41% from the field. I, I He would have to take a massive step forward to be able to shoot that bad again or continue on his current trajectory and drop in field goal percentage close to 40%, um, which he's kind of dropped every season. But I don't really see that happening. My counter argument for this isn't very good just because – I truly believe that he is probably like he has a really good chance of finishing as a first rounder. Um, the counter argument would be that he comes really close and doesn't, but like per game value, he hasn't been far off. Obviously, and if we look at his total value from his second season, he played 75 games and he was eighth. So, you know, we're banking on health here, but I believe in LaMelo. I really, really love him for Dynasty. Um, I have him over Tyrese and SGA for like, that's how I would rank them. Um, I think this season, it kind of shows us why fifth Zach Collins finishes in the top 50. And this one's probably a hotter take just because a lot of people, some people might even be, I mean, I would hope not if you've listened to this podcast before that you say, who's Zach Collins, but I'm sure that there are some people that are going to load up the Yahoo or ESPN or fan tracks or whatever app this season for a redraft league and say, who is Zach Collins? Why is he ranked so high? There are, there are going to be people. Now, if we look at the last two months of last season, which was kind of after uh, Jakob Pertl got traded, Zach Collins was 43rd in nine cap value. Average 16.5 points, 1.6 threes, 8 rebounds, 3.8 assists, 1.1 steals, 1.1 blocks. Shot 49.4% from the floor. Played 28.8 minutes per game. Um, right there, he did it for – it was a 19-game stretch, but he has shown the ability to do that over a period of time. He is going to be the starting center alongside Victor Wimbanyama, who will be power forward. Um like, I don't know what people's expectations are for Wemby. Um, the one thing I can tell you that I really don't think he's going to do is dominate the glass from day one. Um, I think people may be slightly surprised by how few rebounds. Not saying he's not going to grab rebounds. Like, he's 7'5". He's probably going to average at least seven rebounds just off being tall. Like, it's just going to happen. But I'm saying I don't think he comes in and averages a double-double from day one. Like, many people are probably expecting from a seven foot five guy. But I think the fact that he's going to play power forward, Zach Collins is going to be down there boxing out, battling with centers. Zach Collins is going to rebound more than people are expecting. And Wemby is going to rebound less than people are expecting for you know just those reasons. Um, Wemby's still kind of slender. Like It's going to take him a few seasons probably to build up his frame the proper way for him to be able to dominate the glass. So, I think that's what helps Zach Collins um, from day one. And I guess the counter argument is that he's had a lot of health issues and he only did this for a short stretch. How do we know Zach Collins isn't going to just go back to being Zach, like not go back to being Zach Collins, but just not going to be that good for a full season. And I think it's a lot more realistic that he's like a top 75 guy or top 100 guy, a lot safer. I don't think his ADP is anywhere outrageous that you're having to, get him close to the top 50. So I would try and come away with him from every draft I could. That's my plan this season. Um, Because I think that there's a chance for him to finish the top 50. Again, 
this is one of the hotter takes I probably have. Um, but we'll see. I think that there's a path for it. Nikola Jokic doesn't finish as the top player in fantasy. I know, I know. So bold. So, so bold. Like he's like literally saying him versus the field for fantasy. I don't know what the odds would be for, for the top finish. I mean, he's been the top guy for the past three seasons. I, you took him at one last year, should have in every league, and he finished at one. And <laughs> I, I just think it's it's time. You know, he's it's not like voter fatigue, and he's not going to finish first be, for that reason. I think it's you know, there's there's factors. I think I've seen him. Other people say them on Twitter as well. Um, championship hangover a little bit, maybe not him personally, but for the team, maybe he gets off to a slower start. Um, you know, the motivation, not saying his personal motivation, but now he's seen, okay, I win a championship. Maybe I kind of care less about the regular season. I did all this and they didn't give me MVP just because I hadn't won a ring yet. So I went and won a ring and now it's kind of like, eh, I like winning those a little bit better than MVPs. Maybe I'll, I don't know. I'm saying it's, you know, it's not anything that I think he's going to regress as a player. I think that other guys are going to be more motivated by the regular season than he might be. Um, so there isn't really a basis for me saying this one other than I just kind of think it. And I'm this isn't what I'm going to say. And then he's not going to finish as the top player. And then I'm going to say, ha ha, look at me. Look at how smart I am. I knew this from the beginning because one, this is kind of like, an educated guess. This isn't me saying for whatever reason. And two, a lot of people are probably saying this. And three, it's there's so many guys that could take steps forward. Like Joel Embiid was very, very close to being the top guy this past season. He could do it this next season. Like it's possible. So like this isn't one that I'm going to gloat over, but I, I'm rolling with it. Um, the counter argument is that dude has literally been the best guy in fantasy for three straight seasons, and there's no reason to think he's going to slow down anytime soon. Um, so yeah, you know, there's a really good chance that he finishes first again. It's a very fair. Um, it would be one of the most incredible runs in fantasy basketball if he did that for a fourth straight season. Like I, I haven't looked at everybody's nine cap finish and have it off the top of my head, but I would assume. Nobody's finished first four years in a row. I could be totally wrong. There could have been. I mean, I'm sure if you go back to way, way back, maybe somebody did. Or since fantasy basketball has kind of been a thing, I would assume nobody's been the number one guy for four straight seasons. And I'm sure if there is, plenty of people are very frustrated that I'm saying this. And I apologize. Um, I didn't think I was going to be going there when I started this. So I didn't do the research beforehand. But hey, we're rolling with it. I think Jokic is not number one, but that does not mean that I'm not taking him first if I have the number one pick. I don't think there's, it's not like I'm saying, oh, Joel Embiid is finishing first. I'm saying Jokic is not. So there's a couple of guys that I, or like a number of guys that could take big step forward and hit that. So Jokic is still the number one pick. Don't, don't get that twisted. Chris Paul finishes outside the top 75. Um, this one might be a little bit of one of my hotter takes as far as compared to consensus, but I don't think it's outlandish in my opinion. Honestly, I think, 
having listened to some other people's podcasts and and takes, it's kind of softened my stance a little bit because I I was not drafting him. I was like ah, outside the top one hundred. Like he's not going to start. I I don't care. That that's the thing that gets me is so Chris Paul was thirty first last season. It was his worst fantasy finish ever. Like he has been the best. Like one of if not the best play, player in fantasy over like the past 20 years or almost 20 years. As far as like, if you played in a dynasty league that started in 2005, drafted Chris Paul and kept his entire career, like, oh my gosh, that's championships. Like so many. Um, But he finished 31st. He is 38 and he is six feet tall. I think we've seen him start to regress. He's not the same player the main reasons that he has maintained fantasy value is he averaged 8.9 assists per game last season, 1.5 steals, and only 1.9 turnovers. Those are the three things that he really, I mean, like he's still a good free throw shooter. His percentages have dipped a little bit. Um, his field goal percentage really dipped this past season. Scoring is down. He did hit, he hit 1.73s, not a ton, but more than he's, than he's hit in a while. Um, I think. I just don't love the way he fits in Golden State. And I don't think that means – I'm not saying that, oh, they're not a better team with him. Like, for culture and for playing team basketball, like, I think he can bring another element to their team. You know, having Chris Paul have the ball and letting Steph and Clay run across screens, Chris Paul throw it to him. Like, having another playmaker out there is not a bad thing. I – just have a lot of questions about how it's going to work. Cause Chris Paul has been the best pick and roll threat in the NBA for probably 20 years or one of during, like during the past 20 years, every season, he's one of the best pick and roll threats, if not the best one. Um, But what does that look like in Golden State? Who's a team that I'm not saying they never use pick and roll, but they run without the ball. Is Chris Paul going to be successful doing that at his age too? Like you seeing Chris Paul run around screens or just move without the ball um, a ton to the point where he fits in super well within their offense. I have questions about that. My, my question, my follow-up question from that is how, well, how does that work? And also what does that do to his numbers? Is he adapting to their system by sacrificing his numbers? Is he not adapting to their system and they're adapting to him for him to be able to maintain his numbers, but it's in a smaller volume. Like, are they still using him in in pick and rolls, but he's only getting so many per game. Basically what I'm saying is, could he average 14 points a game again? Yes. Could he average 1.73s again? Yes. I'd say there's a good chance that even increases. Is he going to average 8.9 assists per game? I'm going to go ahead and guarantee no. I think that there's, you know, he could probably average a career low in assists and still be an, like effective at um, being uh, providing assists for fantasy managers. There we go. He averaged 8.9 this past season. His career low is 6.7, which was his lone season with the Thunder. I... I just I think he could average a career low in assists, which could be like six and a half, um, maybe a steal and a half. And the turnovers are probably still staying low. Like we're I don't expect that to change, but what does his field goal percentage look like? Like is he 
shooting? Is he getting back to 49% from the field or is he still staying low? Like, I don't know. This is, this is more, I have questions about the fit and I have questions about how much longer he can keep doing this. Like everybody talks about LeBron being superhuman, but Chris Ball's kind of been right there with him. Um, but I think it's different because Chris Paul is a small point guard and LeBron is a six, eight animal that is still probably one of the strongest players in the NBA. And like everybody sees it. I just, I don't know. This is, this is me just having questions about Chris Paul. Now the obvious counterpoint is the fact that it's the Warriors and it's Chris Paul. We're talking about teams, a team that has adapted to everybody that's come to play for them and a player that has adapted and been successful everywhere he's gone to play. There's definitely a path for this to work out beautifully. Like the Warriors traded Jordan Poole and a first and a second. They traded the 22 or 23-year-old that they just gave this, maybe 24-year-old that they just gave this monster contract to because of how successful he was in helping them win a championship. Draymond punches him in the face and he has a bad season and they trade him along with picks for Chris Paul, who's 38. Like it was a weird, weird trade to me. But maybe they gave up all that because they really think this can work and they've been a successful franchise and maybe they're able to make it work. So that would be the obvious counter argument. I just don't feel good about him between his health and the fit. I'm probably avoiding him in drafts. Um, But I think outside the top 75 is pretty possible. I think if his numbers drop a little bit kind of across the board, he isn't able to get the outlier assists then outside the top 75 is very possible. Um, next one, Devin Bissell finishes in the top 50. I really like Devin Bissell and his game, and I think it suits really well for fantasy as well. He finished 78th this past season. Um, he only played 38 games, um, averaged 18 half points, 3.9 rebounds, 3.6 assists, 1.1 steals, 0. 0.4. 0.4 blocks, 2.7 threes. Um, only shot 43.9% from the field. His free throw percentage dropped a little uh, from previous seasons. He only shot 78%. Um, but he doesn't shoot a ton of free throws, so it's not a big deal. Um, I think having, you know, they kind of have their their lineup, their guys. You know, they have Trey Jones running point guard. I don't think he's their point guard of the future necessarily, but Devin Vassell is their shooting guard. Um Probably right now, I'd imagine Keldon Johnson, but maybe Jeremy Sohan is their small forward. Wemby is their power forward. Zach Collins is their center. Um, this one might be hot as well, just because I think there's a good chance he comes close, but doesn't quite reach top 50. Um, I think that last season, he had a really good year, but there were definitely some field goal percentage struggles as he went from being kind of a, a secondary scoring option to a number one or two scoring option alongside Keldon Johnson. The shot attempts went up dramatically from 10.8 to 15.7. Um, the field percentage ended up going up, but it still wasn't great. I think he all, he has the athleticism to average a block a game. Um, he hasn't really showcased that he has his career high 0.6, but I think he can get that up. Um, maybe not all in one season, but I think we could see him average a block per game or close. Um, maybe 1.5 steals by the time he reaches his peak. Um, but this is more that I think he gets comfortable in a major offensive role. 
um, has a little bit more talent alongside him, a little bit more spacing to work with, and kind of makes the leap forward to being a top 50 guy. Um, I'm not feeling, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm feeling less confident in him like definitely finishing top 50 uh, just because it would take probably a, a pretty big step forward um, somewhere in a, in a specific category, whether it be efficiency defensively or scoring um, for him to do that. I think that it's a good situation for him to do that now that assuming health, um, but the counter argument is the fact that he would have to probably, you know, either a major increase in steals and blocks or points, or it, it would take him taking a major leap forward um, when all the attention is going to be on Wemby. But he's been able to like his rookie season, he played 17 minutes per game, averaged five and a half points, about 40.6% from the field year two averages 12.3 points per game. Year three, 18 and a half points per game. Not saying he's going to keep at that pace and average 24 points per game next season, but I think he can get to being a 20 point per game scorer, 1.2 steals, 0.8 blocks, you know, 45, 46% from the field, like little improvements across the board. He was 78th last season. I think he can get close to top 50, maybe top 50 in the right scenario. Obviously this would take him having a pretty big year. Um, Austin Reese finishes outside the top 100 is my ninth hot take. Um, I understand the Austin Reeves hype. I really, I really do get it. He is a good basketball player. Um, he was very, very good in the playoffs last season and he's been, you know, it's not just a product of him playing alongside LeBron and AD and then putting their worst defender on him. Like, he took over in that Memphis game. I, that that stretch where he scored like 13 straight points just is going to stand out for me forever. But he also has looked really good in Team USA scrimmages. Like, he's a legit player. That's not what I'm questioning here. I'm questioning what type of player he is in fantasy. Um, the hype is real. If I – in Dynasty Leagues, I'm probably trying to move him right now just because I don't know if he's able to maintain this hype. And let me say this again. He's a good player. He's a starting caliber player, a very good starter. I don't, I wouldn't think he's an all-star level player, but he went undrafted and signed a two-way deal. And now he's a hundred million dollar guy. So like, I wouldn't write him off, but last season, he averaged 13 points, three rebounds, 3.4 assists, 0.5 steals, 0.3 blocks, 1.3 threes, shot 52.9% from the field, 86.4% from the line, 1.5 turnovers. Okay, where's the improvement coming? Like, what numbers are – he finished 147 last season. He's averaged 13 points per game. Are we going to see him average 18 points per game? I I don't think that's unrealistic. You know, I think that rebounds and assists could jump up one or two. I don't think the defensive stats are changing. I mean, he played 28.8 minutes per game last season. I don't think that's, – that's my thing is that – I know he's like taken this massive leap forward in everybody's eyes, but kind of last season, it felt like he wasn't super aggressive throughout the regular season and then kind of turned it on in the playoffs. Not saying he's just doing what LeBron's doing. That's not what I'm trying to get out of this. Um, are we going to see him come out and have a really aggressive start to the regular season? I think it would take it. Have, he'd have to take a massive statistical leap for him to be worth like finish in the top 100. Like 
finished 147 last year. That's that's not like, oh, he does this, 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 and now he's there. Like he'd have to take a pretty good leap forward. And I expect him to take a leap as a basketball player, um, as we've seen, like in comparison to last regular season. But does that translate into top 100 value? Probably not. I mean, my counter argument is the fact that he's a lot better than he was and has, has played a lot better recently than he did at the beginning of last regular season. Um, and maybe he will come out and average 18 points, five rebounds, four assists, 0.8 steals, 0.5 blocks, two and a half threes, and maintain his 53% field goal percentage. And if he does that, he's probably a top 100 guy. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but that seems like top 100 to me. Um, so there's a counter argument. I just think that it's, it's banking on him taking almost like another step forward after he took, took a step forward in the playoffs. So I think, you know, pump the brakes a little bit on the hype train for Austin Reeves. Um, I just don't think he's going to be worth the premium price that you'll probably have to pay for him. But again, let me just be clear. That's not me saying he's a really good basketball player. I just think he's one of those guys that it, it just doesn't necessarily translate great to fantasy value. My last one is Jordan Poole finishes in the top 40. Um, I think there's a chance he finishes even higher than this, but I wanted to keep it kind of like, I don't know, a solid number, top 40. I kept saying top 50, but I, I didn't want to go too ridiculous and say like top 25. But like, I don't know, anything else kind of sounded weird. So top 40 sounded good to me. Um, in Golden State last season, or excuse me, we'll start with two seasons ago. He finished 64th, played 76 games. Last season, he averaged, or excuse me, finished 148 and played 82 games. And I know now I'm saying it out loud. It's kind of funny. I didn't even realize this. Um, he, Jordan Poole finished one spot behind Austin Reeves. And now I'm like, Jordan Poole's going to finish top 40, but Austin Reeves isn't going to do anything. But that's just kind of the way it works out, I guess, because I think a lot of people are banking on Jordan Poole being very good this season. Um he finished 64th two seasons ago. So that's my counter argument to why Jordan Poole, yes, and Austin Reeves, no. Um, Poole averaged 20.4 points, 2.7 rebounds, 4.5 assists last season, along with 2.63s, shot 43% from the field. Basically, his efficiency kind of dropped last season. Um, and you can chalk it up to a number of things. Um, you could say that it's because of the incident with Draymond and just never figuring things out, but I don't think that's necessarily the only reason, or at least not the main reason. Um, Jordan Poole earned his contract because of his success starting in place of Clay Thompson. And I don't have the numbers up right in front of me right now, but I know I've said them in the past. I think he averaged like 24 points per game um, when he started this past season. And then it was way worse with way less efficiency when he didn't start um, last season. As a matter of fact, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm definitely going to pull this up while I'm talking about it because I should have prepared. Um, and actually, it was already one of my most recent search. So as a start of the last two seasons, he averaged 22.5 points, 4.4 assists, and 3.4 rebounds. And then off the bench, he averaged 15 points, 4.1 assists, 2.5 rebounds, he shot 44.4% from the field off the bench, 43.6% as a starter, so not a major improvement there. But, I mean, truly the the difference, obviously, you kind of expect it when the guy's coming off the bench versus starting, but that's kind of the reason, in my opinion, for 
why he struggled so much last season is how much he had to come off the bench in comparison to being a starter most of the time um, the season before. Uh, because even, you know, when when Clay came back, Draymond went out and Jordan Poole was still kind of starting at times as like a shooting guard with Clay at small forward, Andrew Wiggins at power forward at times. Um, I could be wrong with that. Somebody could definitely fact check me and say, oh, actually, this is what happened as soon as Clay came back. This is, I'm just trying to go off the top of my head here um, for what the lineups looked like when Clay Thompson came back because I don't remember it off like perfectly, but I think I do. Um, but Jordan Poole is going to be the number one scoring option in Washington and have a chance to be a better playmaker. He averaged 4.5 assists last last season. I think you could get that up to like five and a half. Um, average like 24, 25 points per game. If the efficiency can get up to like 45%, the threes are like, he's going to hit a lot of threes. Like he's been playing in Steph's shadow. Um, I think there's a chance he hits like four threes per game. Uh, so I think top 40 is very attainable. He hasn't really missed games the past two seasons. Hopefully he's able to continue that health in Washington. Um, he's going to have a big season. I think top 40s, obviously, like I said, a little bit of a hot take, but I think he's going to have a very, very good season. Um, the counter argument is that, you know, he's just not efficient enough. Just he's going to go to Washington have free reign and ultimate green light. And his field goal percentage is going to go down. He's going to turn the ball over a ton just because he's not playing on a championship team. And he's, you know, he's going to put up big counting stats and be great for points leagues, but he's going to be limited in category leagues. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. I think even if he's not playing on as, as good of a team, he's still going to be able to have a really, really big season. This is kind of what he's been preparing for the past couple of years playing behind Steph. So I think it's finally his time to shine. Um, but that is my 10 hot takes. Um, I guess after the season, maybe I'll do an episode where that includes me looking back at this and maybe have a guest to, I'll find somebody good to make fun of me for the ones that I got wrong. I'll be very, very selective about who comes on, gets the chance to make fun of me based on the takes. Maybe it's somebody that was on the total opposite side of some of these takes that can really, really hand it to me. Um, when I get these wrong, but uh, this has been episode 19 of the Tank Me Later podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening, and remember to like and subscribe and follow me on Twitter and all that jazz. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode.